discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Howdy, folks. As of recording this, it is April 20th, 2022. So, happy 420, if that applies to you. And speaking of all of that, have I got a treat for you this evening. This may actually wind up being a fairly controversial episode. But you know what? I don't care. No offense, it's my show. And on this episode, I wish to introduce you all to a gentleman by the name of Dan Musig, who is facing 5 to 80 years in federal prison, which means technically he's a criminal. And I don't think I've ever handed over the microphone to a criminal before, which is what we're going to do, because Dan Music will be my very special guest this evening for Open Mic Night. Oh, and just so all of this makes sense to you and why I'm doing this, especially today, Dan Music is facing up to 80 years in federal prison over non-violent cannabis offenses. Stay tuned to hear all about it. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. Howdy folks. Before we begin, I do highly, highly encourage you to make sure you check out the show notes for today's episode to learn more about ways that you can help as it pertains to the following story. And with that out of the way, exactly why is Dan Music facing an uncertain length of time in one of the U.S. federal prisons across the country? According to Andrew Ward, writing for High Times, He finds himself in the predicament over two charges, conspiracy to distribute and possession with intent to distribute cannabis. The feds allege that he and his group moved between 220 and 880 pounds of pot in the Pittsburgh area. Musig admits he did the crime and should do some time, but the destruction of his family and possible length of the sentence do not fit the bill. He believes that additional factors, including his viral video and unwillingness to become a witness, are sealing his fate. I'm about to get sentenced to, at best, the five-year mandatory minimum, he said, adding that pedophiles, murderers, and terrorists have received lesser sentences. Once sentenced, Musig won't have 
have the traditional appeal options due to his admission of guilt. Instead, he has to hope for President Joe Biden to take executive action of some kind. While waiting, he's garnered the support of cannabis prisoner advocacy ventures, including Freedom Grow, 40 Tons, and The Last Prisoner Project. Musig hopes to see more progressives hold the president to his commitment to take action on federal cannabis arrests and the more than 2,000 individuals in the federal system today. While waiting on any possible action, he implores supporters to learn and follow more about him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where he will post via a proxy while sentenced. Though he hopes to gain exposure for his own case, Music emphasizes the scores of other cannabis offenders still in or affected by drug sentences, saying the cause goes beyond those that receive publicity like himself. Music stated, quote, it's about every other person that had to face this alone, end quote. Hightimes.com The following was written by Dan Musig and posted April 20th, 2022 by the Pittsburgh City Paper, pghcitypaper.com. In a few weeks, I'll be commencing a mandatory minimum five-year federal prison sentence for a first-time nonviolent cannabis offense. Federal prosecutors waited 28 months to charge me for this crime. In that time, our region and nation went through two presidential administrations, at least two United States attorneys, three attorney generals, several national reckonings with racism and murder and policing, and an unprecedented surge in fentanyl overdoses and COVID. The world we live in underwent momentous changes to the extent that most of us three years earlier would scarcely recognize many aspects of our lives today. But here in Pittsburgh, one of the constants was the Western District's obsession with putting me in prison for selling weed in the spring of 2019. I'm not going to wrap myself in the proverbial cloak of legal innocence. I'm beyond guilty. I conspired to sell 404 pounds of cannabis on May 24th, 2019. In fairness, my entire life since the age of 13 has largely been a conspiracy to sell cannabis. I was also not a small-time player. If you smoked legacy market cannabis in western Pennsylvania during the 2010s, then you more likely than not got it from me in some fashion. I pleaded out at the earliest opportunity given, and most important to this story, I refused to cooperate in any form. While my guilt was factual, the reason behind the government's relentless pursuit of me stemmed less from my nefarious cannabis trafficking activities and more from the job I had when I abortively tried to not sell cannabis. I was a criminal defense attorney with a left-wing bent and a total lack of respect for tradition and authority as depicted by my viral ad, Thanks Dan, where my real criminal friends committed dramatized crimes and thanked me for enabling them to do so. I created the ad out of law school, partially as Swiftian satire, because many people besides those who lock people up for a living know that our justice system is a sick joke. I also created it because with $300,000 in medical debt and a new career in a regressive marketplace, I needed some clients. 
The ad went meteorically viral due to the fact that the truth in its mocking resonated. It succeeded too well for me to represent anyone here without prejudicing them with my presence alone. So back to the trap I went with a bevy of powerful enemies that my later mistakes gave opening to destroy me. Long before your local government ever decided that you were allowed to purchase cannabis in a controlled and friendly environment, myself and my then downstairs neighbor Dale, a former steelworker and Mon Valley Citizens Council labor fighter, opened up Western Pennsylvania's first dispensary in a converted basement apartment in Friendship. The store, as it became colloquially known, was a Pittsburgh institution. Surgeons, nurses, teachers, local cops, yinzers, hippies, trappers, frat bros, sorority girls, lawyers, rappers, stealers, cosplay kids, judges, punks, anarchists, vegans, service industry and sex workers, pipeliners, skaters, and some elected officials all called it home, jostling happily in the daily line as they asked Dale for their preferred strain or favorite edible. It wasn't just a business, it was a place of love and acceptance, and truly egalitarian. Every race and class was present and respected. It was our CBGBs in the East Village, or a crash pad on the hate in San Francisco, an enduring monument to the counterculture that blazed the trail for the corporate co-opt that ensued. There would be no Apple Store-esque dispensaries with gleaming edifices and recessed lighting if people like Dale, myself, and hundreds of others here hadn't taken the initial risk and thrown that Overton window wide open. We normalized cannabis being available here at all times, and we broke the exact same law that the Crescos and GTIs did. They somehow are allowed to rake in their chips off the table while we get thrown in prison for more time than many rapists, heroin dealers, or those who stormed the Capitol. I wasn't sentenced to prison for the store. The feds stumbled onto our wholesale operation due to an ongoing investigation into a crew in Braddock that was selling heroin and crack. We sold a guy weed who sold it to another guy who sold it to them. I make no judgments about anyone, but I don't condone hard drug selling, and I make it a point to never intentionally associate with anyone who did. The local press, however, didn't take the time to do any investigative work other than retyping law enforcement affidavits and press releases. For them, the gotcha aspect of the viral former lawyer going to prison far outweighed the question of what happened here and why is anyone going to prison for cannabis now? Had they done even a modicum of work, they'd have maybe asked if, during these times of dizzying household expenses and soaring prices, a two-and-a-half-year investigation into non-violent cannabis sales was the wisest allocation of your tax dollars. Every surveillance camera aimed at our house revealed nothing. Every time we were followed running errands, months or even years after I'd withdrawn from illegal activity, every second of overtime, paperclip, printer ink cartridge, and each day of my incarceration was and is being paid for by you. And there's the human cost. One of the original indictees lost his life to suicide after he was indicted. He was a 63-year-old father of three and grandfather of eight, with his first great-grandchild on the way. He wasn't a major player in the game or a threat to anyone. He had never been in trouble and had cannabis not been criminalized by the feds, he never would have been. Instead, facing a mandatory prison term and under immense pressure to cooperate, he snapped and did the unthinkable and irreversible. He's gone forever now. You guys also footed the bill for that. His son, a street poet and famous local artist, was driven to the depths of despair by his father's death. He overdosed and died 
died from fentanyl a few weeks before I was indicted. He was my best friend, a brother to me, and he would be alive and fighting for his sobriety and future if his dad was alive. Make no mistake there. So he's also on the tab. We lost our adoption over this, my wife and I. We were finishing up the home study with the raid from 2019, about two and a half years in the past, when I received a phone call from my defense attorney saying that I'd been indicted. I soon learned that the charges were the same ones I'd offered to surrender on in 2019. My surrender was rebuffed when I refused to cooperate. I was willing to accept responsibility for my actions. I wouldn't shift that blame onto others. A coward does that, an enabler of our oppressors. Unfortunately for myself, my wife, my mom, and the child we had to leave in Seoul. Others didn't share my idealism. So I guess that goes on the reckoning as well. Time and time again in this hellish process, it was made apparent to me that I could always avail myself of proffering or testifying in order to reduce my criminal consequences. This continued right up until sentencing, where after my final refusal, the prosecution released a memo so vile in its glee that it literally went viral on Twitter. It became readily apparent that a large motivation for this long-ranging, expensive, and horrifically damaging investigation was to stick it to me for the commercial. They wanted me to rat. They'll never get what they want. No one is ever doing a day in prison because of me. If I have to do more time because of that, then so be it. One of their largest issues with me was that I didn't adequately respect the law or the system. They harped on my quote that laws are arbitrary. So, to show me otherwise, they gave me a mandatory federal sentence for something that is state legal and sold by corporations in the state, despite being federally illegal. Sure showed me. Irony is not lost on fascists, however, and totalitarian exercisers of state power have no sense of humor about their institutional prerogatives and pride being trampled on by those with the temerity to question them. Bad laws end by being broken. No other way. Many of the people who put me in prison share the same political party as myself and my family. When the democratic tent includes those perpetrating the genocide of the drug war and those being victimized by it, then that tent is too large and must fray. For years, our democratic politicians have pandered to the progressive base while doing nothing on criminal justice reform in order to appease their prosecutor and police constituents. This must end. Biden promised that no one else should ever be imprisoned for pot, and those inside should go free. Rage over my sentence sparked the formation of No Pardons, No Votes, a movement created to hold waffling Democrats accountable to their empty promises. You don't advocate for our freedom, you don't deserve our votes. From dog catcher to president and every office in between. To this day, both Biden and Congress have never adjusted the mandatory minimum sentences that destroyed millions of lives. Reform is oh so close, and yet light years away. Now in my waning days of freedom, every second brings melancholic pain. Every good memory feels like a lie. I see people walking in the sunshine through my window, and I know that there will be no summer for me. No holidays. No nothing. I'll be in a concrete cubicle a million metaphorical miles away from anyone who cares about me while the world moves on in my absence. My wife will contend with missing me and the family we hoped to have, and my parents will age without my presence or ability to help them. My days pass in a torpor of anxiety and dread. I feel like I am dying. I see no real future. The people who put me in prison, both the government and their informants, either fail to realize or don't care about the fact that history will vindicate me and reserve a far harsher judgment of them, locking up non-violent cannabis offenders 
isn't going to be a plumb line on a resume soon. It will be something those complicit hope to minimize with excuses like, it was the law, or we were just doing our jobs, or following orders. I'd submit that once public opinion shifts, those excuses will sound ever more hollow as they already do today. There's a long line of these functionaries being retrospectively assigned their responsibility in crimes against people. Criminalization of cannabis was always about social control and never about public protection. At best, they'll be seen as the humorless and prim prohibition agents, and their tolerance of the corporate trade while chasing us will be their corrupt legacy. At worst, and more likely, they'll be perceived no differently than those who locked up war protesters, student dissidents, those who incarcerated migrant organizers, black civil rights activists, and the Japanese during World War II. The law is meaningless in the face of what's right, and that's something they've never understood. This is a human rights crime against non-violent Americans, disproportionately people of color. I could never do to others what was done to me in this. My life is now suffering, but I can look in the mirror and see a man staring back at me. Everyone's a tough guy till that mandatory hits. Then you see. I passed my test. Shame many didn't. When you spark up on 420, take a deep inhale. Tilt your head back and blow the smoke up to the sky. Smoke one for me. One for Bobby Capelli doing eight years. For John Wall about to go on trial for 10 to life. For Luke Scarmazzo, 14 into 22. And for Parker Coleman doing 60. You wouldn't have the luxury of your exercise in freedom were it not for us. Please remember that. Free us all. Fuck their laws. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.